When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Foreign Policy and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. Well, we've made it to the final episode of our season devoted entirely to looking at the various aspects of a just transition. That's this idea that as we move away from fossil fuels, whole communities have to be taken into account. We have to think about what happens to our society as we push towards clean energy and toward a decarbonized economy. This episode is a little different from others this season. During the second half of the show, you're going to hear an excerpt from a live Twitter Spaces conversation that I had with Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. She's a leading voice in the climate movement, as well as the co-founder and executive director of the All We Can Save project. But before that, we want to share with you our final field report, and it comes from a country at the center of many of the world's just transition efforts. South Africa. In our first two episodes, Elna Schutz profiled the town of Kamadi, located 100 miles east of Johannesburg, where a coal-fired power plant had just closed its doors, and community members, government officials, and activists all were weighing in on what to do next. Uh, We expect to learn from it, uh, correct as we move, and certainly use the lesson learned for future decommissioning of additional plants. There's been a massive infusion of time, effort, and economic resources into helping figure out what will happen to Kamadi and how to ensure that the community will rebound from this loss. But in this last episode, we also want to talk about the flip side of things, the opportunities created in other communities by turning towards green technology. For this story, Elna traveled west to look at another area of South Africa where a very different topography is lending itself to new opportunities. The Northern Cape is the largest and most sparsely populated province in South Africa, and also one of the warmest. As far as the eye can see, there's nothing much apart from blue skies and shrubs. And if you're unlucky, some poisonous snakes. The ones more common here is the Cape Cobra, the Pofade, the Spitting Cobra. Three of them are quite dangerous. But the one thing that's very noticeable in this landscape is Key Solar One. It's a big white tower, which is so bright at the top that you can't really look straight at it. Jose Caruela is the general manager of this concentrated solar power, or CSP, plant, which is owned by a Spanish company. Key Solar One was the first CSP tower in Africa in operation. Uh, it's one of the tallest uh, buildings in, in the country, and it's more than 200 meters high. They were working here around, the peak was around 2,000 people, and now during the operation we have 100 people working, uh, not every day, but almost from time to time. Most of these employees are locals, and some of them moved into renewable energy from coal-fired power stations. When we talk about making the energy transition just, It's important to not only move away from dirty fuels, but to find adequate jobs and reskilling if necessary 
for those workers. The people at Key Solar One are an example of what this might look like. Okay, we are currently um, standing right in front of the solar field. This is Petunia Fundisiwezondo, one of the operations managers at Key Solar One. But we'll see when we jump off. Before we get into more of her story, she takes me on a tour and explains how the plant works. The solar field is huge. It's around 600 hectares or 1,500 acres worth of big panels covered in mirrors, tilted upwards. Those are called heliostats. As you can see, um, the heliostats reflect the sun to the cavity. On the cavity, there is a lot of pipes that you won't be able to see from where we're standing um, with water. The cavity is a hole at the top of that big white tower I mentioned. It's much larger than most lighthouses, but you can imagine a similar shape. As the reflection happens from the solar field, from the heliostats on the solar field, they boil the water into steam. And then from there, it will be transferred to drive the turbine actually and produce electricity. And that electricity then goes into the national grid. It's sold to ESCOM. Yes. It's quite an overwhelming sight, both in its size and how unbelievably bright the reflection is. When I try to photograph it, it almost looks unrealistically photoshopped because neither my eyes nor my camera can quite capture it. We find a quiet, cool office to chat more. Petuna tells me she was always interested in doing something that helped others. I always um, wanted to be a doctor, but later on it changed. I think as I was doing mathematics and physical science, I actually thought of being an engineer. After graduating, Petuna went straight into the fossil fuel industry. I've worked with different power stations, like big power stations like Litabo Power Station and Kendall at some point and um, Komati as well. But after several years working in the northeastern part of the country where coal is mined and processed, she turned her gaze west to where the first renewable plants were being built. I moved because, you know, I, I, global warming is one of the topics that is sensitive um, currently with reducing carbon emissions. So I got interested into that actually. And I think that's when the renewables started to make sense to me and become a passion in my career path. Petuna says that the move to renewable energy was surprisingly easy to adapt to. The job is a little less busy and really interesting. I think coal, it's, it's a little bit more busier. They're running six units, so there's a lot of activities happening. So with the renewable, it's only one turbine that you're looking after. However, when it's cloudy, it becomes a slightly challenging. A very big part of this conversation internationally is about skills transfer and making sure that in a just transition, jobs are being held. So when we close or slowly decommission coal-fired power plants, we want to make sure that those people have jobs and are either reskilled or skilled anew for renewables. Petunia says for her, the transition to a job in renewable energy has been fairly smooth. It was very easy for me to do transition from coal-fired power station 
to the solar power station. Because most of the systems are similar. We've got boilers, they've got boilers. We've got a turbine, they've got a turbine. I've learned the turbine from the coal-fired power station. Padunia is aware that renewables aren't perfect either, of course. Often the construction uses more carbon-heavy means and the projects are usually smaller. Kisola One, for instance, produces 50 megawatts per hour, whereas one unit at a coal-fired power plant can make around 600 megawatts. And working in a far-flung place does come with a price. Padunia's children and family are in Johannesburg, where there are more schooling options, while they were able to be with her when she worked in coal. I have to time and again travel back home to see my kids and my family. That's the only thing that is like sometimes, um, you know, um, frustrating a little bit, but the environment is the same. Um, It's easy to get used to it. This is a cheeky question, but do you like your job here better or working with coal-fired plants? Now that we are transitioning to the zero net emissions, of course, I would, I would like to, to be the future. Um, the future is on the renewables, so it's, it's going to be sustainable. So I would prefer to remain on renewables. Do you think it will be possible to do so fairly for all the workers, considering that renewables often use less workers? Uh, with the nature of um, renewables, yes, because I don't think that it's necessary to have a lot of unnecessary manpower. Um, it's, it's just the nature of the renewables, unfortunately. But with more projects coming, of course, they will expand the number of people working in the renewables. Petunia is just one example of what the transition into renewables may look like for people on the ground. And it is important to emphasize that she is a highly skilled worker and not employed by a third-party contractor, which makes her, in some ways, part of the luckier few. But her story gives hope and perspective to others looking at how this can work. I know that the more we produce electricity without emitting the environment, the better for the future and the better for for the global warming. So I'm actually very glad to be part of the team that is involved in making sure that the future is taken care of. Many thanks to Elna Schutz for that story. And now onto our featured conversation, which took place earlier today on Twitter Spaces. I had the chance to speak with renowned author and climate thought leader, Catherine Wilkinson. She's the co-founder and executive director of the All We Can Save project, and has been a leading global voice on solutions to the climate crisis, as well as climate feminism. We spoke about all of that, and specifically about the context of a just transition. Here's our conversation. Hello, everyone. Um, Welcome to our live recording of Heat of the Moment um, from Foreign Policy and the Climate Investment Funds. Um, I'm John Sutter, the host of this podcast, and I'm super excited to have with me today, Catherine Wilkinson, um, who does all the things, but uh, among them um, is, is a co-founder of the All We Can Save project. So i um, thrilled to have you here, Catherine, and excited to hear your thoughts on all things climate and solutions-y. How are you? Hi, John. I'm really excited to be having this chat with you. 
Um, Catherine, can you just start off for people who aren't familiar with it? Like, tell 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 us about the All We Can Save um, project. It started as a book, right? A collection of of essays by women in the climate movement, and then it's kind of become like a movement in its own right. I would say, yeah. Oh, well, that feels like you know a very high bar. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I'll entertain walking on it. Um, yeah. So the All We Can Save project is is really kind of an outgrowth of the anthology All We Can Save that came out in September 2020, and much to our publisher's surprise, became a national bestseller, uh, which we were really delighted about. Congratulations. And well, thank you. Um, and yeah, for folks who haven't seen that book, it is a collection, as John said, of writings by women climate leaders, essays, as well as poetry and art. Um, and as we were kind of, you know, at that final leg of shepherding the book out into the world, we thought, this is really more than a book. Um, and we're going to want to be able to do some more things with this book, like create resources for educators that want to bring it into the classroom, like All We Can Save Circles, which are a kind of small group model for deep learning and relational organizing, um, using the book as a jumping off point. So the All We Can Save project has been shepherding that work. The mission um, that we wake up and think about every day is nurturing the leaderful climate community that we need for a just and life-giving future. Um, and that word leaderful to us means a lot of things. It means a bigger climate team. It means a more diverse and inclusive climate team, um, a more courageous and perhaps also more soulful um, uh, community doing this work. I, um, I, I've heard you speak before on um, issues of like, you know, not just women in the climate movement, but climate um, feminism and also why climate is a gender issue. And I'm wondering mm. if you could break that down for people who may be unfamiliar with that pairing, right, of, of pairing um, feminism and climate justice. Like, how, how are these things linked? How, how, do you, how do you see that space? Absolutely. Well, it's interesting, actually, if we go kind of way back into early history of climate science, um, these things turn out to be connected. Um, and then I'll maybe bring us forward to the present day. So Eunice Newton Foote, and I think today is International Women's Day, so this feels appropriate uh, to be to be lifting up her name. Um, she, in many ways, was the grandmother of climate science, um, but was largely sort of forgotten and written out of the history books until quite recently, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but in 1856, she published a paper that connected the dots between carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the Earth's temperature. Um, and she, you know, like a lot of women in that era, did not have sort of resources and institutional affiliations. I think she actually did her experiments in her backyard. Um, but a hundred and what, 66 years ago? Um, don't ask me to do math, please. Um, you know, <laughs> a while back. <laughs> a while back. Um, many, many moons. Um, right? She, she connected these dots. Um, and what's interesting is that she was also very involved in the early movement for women's rights um, and women's suffrage. You can see her name on 
a list of signatories to the Seneca Falls Declaration. Um, that was a you know maybe about a decade before she published that paper. So um, I like to imagine Eunice as this person who was both uh, faithful to science and to equality, um, and maybe she was an early climate feminist, uh, though perhaps those were not quite the dots she was connecting, I don't know. Um, and, you know, when we kind of fast forward to the present, right, we hear a lot about climate change as a threat multiplier. Um, mm. And when we think about a world with existing vulnerabilities and injustices, those are among the things that climate change multiplies, right? Um, as I know you've been been covering some this season, John. Um, so when we think about our world today, which is unfortunately still a rather gender unequal world, it's perhaps not surprising that as climate impacts hit, we see, for example, women and girls face greater risk of displacement or death from extreme weather events. Um, we have data now that connects early marriage and sex work, which are sometimes last resort survival strategies, to droughts and floods. Um, we <laughs> see gender-based violence spike um, when, when climate impacts hit. We saw this, for example, when the wildfires um, were raging in Australia. Um, so these are just kind of a few examples that we might not necessarily think of, right? Uh, and and yet, you know, there are gender injustices at work as climate change unfolds, um, which also means that we really need gender responsive strategies for for solving this this challenge and figuring out how to survive it um, as as well. And then the other piece that I think about a lot is that when we think about virtually any climate decision-making space, right, from, um, you know, United Nations climate negotiations to uh, national political and legal systems to leadership in business and finance and technology. We, we basically don't have gender equal leadership in, I think, probably any, any of those spaces, spaces yeah. right? yeah. where, where there are major decisions being made about our collective our collective future. And what we also have some interesting data on is that from the local level to the national level, um, when women are present in climate decision-making and uh, kind of climate leadership, the outcomes for the planet are better. Um, and so, you know, this isn't just something that's like, well, it sounds fair, right? Like mm -hmm. half the world should be equally represented in um, <laughs> in our collective future. But it's like, actually, yeah. this is a really strategic thing. Um, we, we've been talking like this season on the podcast a lot about this idea of a just transition of, away from fossil fuels. Like, yeah. you know, every, if everyone's agreeing that um, as they should, <laughs> that we have to move as fast as possible away um, you know, from fossil fuels and towards a carbon neutral um, economy, like thinking about issues of of fairness in that shift. And I think that like, I don't know, when we started the season, a lot of times when I would hear people use the term just transition, they were just talking about like coal communities or like oil communities, like mm -hmm. places where fossil fuels are produced and like the jobs of those workers being displaced as you shift from, you know, say coal to, to solar or wind. Um, I, I, I feel like that term 
is becoming much more expansive though over time. And like, I'm curious Mm -hmm. what you think of it, like, and how you define a just transition, what that means um, for you. I I learned a lot um, or maybe sort of expanded some of my thinking about this in the process of putting together an episode from our second season of A Matter of Degrees, um, which this was when uh, Build Back Better was still being called Build Back Better, right? Mm -hmm. And we were, you know, like, okay, there's going to be, you know, infusions of cash coming into climate transformation. Can we have green jobs for all? (laughs) Question mark. Um, (laughs) And right, because, okay, we could have these promises of of big investments in a clean energy economy, but who's actually, you know, who's actually getting the education, the training, where's the workforce development happening to ensure that, um, you know, folks who have, um, have struggled or suffered in our kind of petro-driven economy are, our position to be beneficiaries um, of of those investments and and kind of the new economy emerging. And and so I think that immediately takes you beyond just, you know, coal country, right? Um, Or or oil country. And I think takes you into every community and every space where we'll be retrofitting homes, right? And installing Mm -hmm. heat pumps and electric vehicle infrastructure. Um, but maybe one of the really interesting conversations I had for that episode was with Christina Kwok, um, who has done a lot of really fascinating work at the nexus of, of gender and climate, specifically around girls' education. And she was challenging us to think about, you know, what are actually the bounds of the green economy um, or the bounds of a, of a just transition. Um, and, you know, one of the things she was really advocating for in that episode was like care work is part of a just transition, right? Hmm. Um, These industries, education, um, healthcare, all dimensions of care work that are, you know, women are actually overrepresented in those fields. Well, they Hmm. become really critical when we think about what does a resilient society look like, right? What is it going to look like to try to survive? And also, interestingly, many of those fields and professions are low carbon professions. Um, And so, you know, she was sort of advocating also, like, if we're not thinking about, if we're not thinking more expansively and holistically, A, we're going to miss some things that we really need to be investing in for our collective climate future. Um, And come on, like, let's not again, sort of have women, (laughs) have women sort of short shrifted um, in, in all of this as well. Yeah, I mean, if you think about energy, like, well, you think about like any moments of like big transition, especially in the energy sphere and big like manufacturing spheres, it, it usually comes with like some pretty large degree of like social uh, like upheaval you know like it's never Mm -hmm. it's it's never been historically um um, like a smooth thing and so i i um i I think i just think it's such an important conversation to have i I think sometimes people hear the term just transition or like thinking around that and it, it used to flag like almost someone who's trying to pump the brakes on the transition away from fossil fuels, right? Mm. Like that, that, oh, we can't don't like, don't move too fast, you know? Um, but I think it's like a yes and kind of thing, right? Like, yeah. yes, we have to move as fast as possible. And yes, also uh, we have to take into account, like, what does this do to our society and our 
and our workforce and yeah. uh, you know all the tingled things that are like <laughs> that are ra- that are wrapped up in that it's it's anything totally I, but simple i guess um yeah i mean i think it's you know the way i sort of think about it is how do we not leave people or communities behind in this like, like deeply that. liminal time that we're living in right yeah. um where we are you know where we are taking apart some things building lots of other things and you know i think in any moment of just a lot of disruption and a lot of change i feel like those are the moments when when people and communities fall through the cracks um and so you know how do we have how do we have attention to that um so that the future economy is not just a clean energy and a low carbon economy um but it is you know, genuinely a, you know, a, a life-giving economy um, in, in the biggest sense. As if we don't have enough to do, am I right? <laughs> as if we don't have enough to do. What, what are the things like you look for as like a signal of whether that's happening or not, right? Like mm. I think sometimes these conversations get so big. It's like, okay, if I'm watching yeah. a policy conversation, like how like how do i know if these things are genuinely being taken into account or if it's you know that mm. that that we're giving more lip service to it but it's it's not really a, a a thing that's happening how do you how do you watch that stuff yeah i mean i think you know i think for example the emergence of of justice 40 out of new york and california and on to kind of the national climate policy radar and set of commitments from the White House was, you know, that to me was a significant indicator. Um, you know, and for people who aren't of, familiar with that, could you yes. like, break that down just a bit? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the Justice 40 initiative, right, goes back to this, again, this question of federal investment um, and, and where does that go and who benefits? And so the Justice 40 initiative is about directing 40% of the overall benefits of climate investments toward disadvantaged communities, right? Communities that have, um, you know, have been marginalized in in our current fossil fuel economy. Um, and of course, there's a lot to unpack in that, right? Of like, well, what do we mean by benefits? And, you know, what communities <laughs> count as disadvantaged? But I think, you know, it was a, there's a lot of work, I think, still to be done on realizing the the promise of um of justice 40 but i think just the fact that that is now you know like that is a a, a core commitment that there are senior leaders in the federal government who are shepherding justice 40 that that felt to me like a really a really big piece um and i think when you look at the state level you know seeing workforce development funds, for example, go into clean energy and other climate-related fields, um, right? There's a ton of work to be done, and we don't have the labor to do it currently. Um, and and so, you know, I think as we see, you know, even in, um, even in my home state and formerly your uh, momentary <laughs> state, Sean, Georgia, right? <laughs> Like, it's been really interesting to see Republican leaders in the state kind of go from bashing the Inflation Reduction Act as, you know, socialist policy to like, 
well, actually, we really like the things that are happening around these, you know. <laughs> Interesting. There's money coming plants. here. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. Um, this is actually, this turns out to be pretty good for the people of Georgia. <laughs> um, so it'll be interesting, right, then to see, do we actually, you know, do we actually start to see beyond democratic leadership around, you know, mm. workforce development, et cetera, on these, on these things. And of course, you know, I think it's so exciting that just seeing some stats about how many, how many young people want to be working in the climate field, right? Like just the, you know, the kind of upwelling of, of energy to, to be part of this, this transition in some way. Yeah. I, I'm glad you brought up justice 40. Cause I think like it's, it's more, it takes it one step further than just a statement of principle, right? Like we want yeah. this investment to be like equitable, like some, ethereal mysterious way like versus like okay we're actually putting x percent of um the dollars that we're putting into this into um specific projects that will like you said hopefully benefit people who have been marginalized and the definitions around that you know for sure worth like talking through but but that it's tied to like money i guess is like what makes it seem different and potentially replicable in, in in other parts of the world where you know, like everyone's in kind of this, like you said, this deeply liminal <laughs> space. I like that. I like that as a yeah. way to describe it. Yeah, I think that's right. So when, um, you know, we've known each other a number of, of years now. And when we first met, I think um, you were working at uh, Project Drawdown, which, you know, if people aren't familiar, yeah. really did a, a pretty incredible thing in terms of like putting out there into the world um, a deep, analysis of solutions to the climate crisis and um to my mind at least like quantifying sort of for the first time like how these things stack up in terms of what they do to 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 global um emissions and you were the um lead writer on on the first drawdown book that came out in was it like 2017 2018 2017 yeah wow um but i just think that 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 book in that analysis has been so influential in terms of like giving people hope and giving people specifics you know i think that clearly the crux of the climate challenge is an energy challenge right and meaning both sources of energy and also the ways that we use it um and also i think you know drawdown certainly elevated, I think, as well, the issues in our food systems, um, plant-rich diets, reducing um, food waste. um, And of course, you know, there were whole suites of land-based solutions. So both, um, you know, both around agriculture and around ecosystem protection and restoration. And I think, you know, I hope that a lot more people came to understand the the power and the importance of of carbon sinks in uh in the natural world and also the limitations of them right you know mm-hmm. I, I hear sometimes from people who are real kind of evangelists in that space well like if we just let late nature do it and it's like unfortunately we you know we <laughs> the fossil fuel era has put so much carbon into the atmosphere that like there's not enough land on this planet to solve it um quote unquote naturally um and so and certainly not if we continue you know 
continue emitting um, at the rate we we currently are. Um, and so, you know, more than anything, I hope it was a bit of a seeing the forest for the trees um, kind of project. And that was certainly something we tried to strengthen as well in the drawdown review, which was the follow-up to drawdown um, that we released released for free um, on Project Drawdown's website. Bad timing. It was March 2020. So if you missed it, um, there were other <laughs> things going on. <laughs> Just a couple of things. But, you know, really trying to help people wrap their heads around the whole system um, of solutions that we need, mostly to stop sending greenhouse gases up into the air, but also to bring mm -hmm. some of that carbon back, back, down. back home. I think it's like... It, I, I agree with you. It's natural to want to do your part and to do what you can as a way to feel connected to this like uber global intergenerational <laughs> like issue, um, but not to feel the weight of it like yeah. every single day. Um, you know, who wants to come to that party, right? Like right. who wants to come to the climate shame? <laughs> no, we're party? more fun than that. Yeah. I um, know. And I'm like, so I also think part of it is, is about, is about movement building also, right? That like, yeah. nobody's going to show up for this. Well, obviously some people do, um, but the vast majority of people are not going to show up if they feel like their life, their life is going to be picked apart, especially when, you know, many of the big solutions we could implement in our individual lives are often financially out of reach for people, you know, and mm -hmm. that's one of the things the Inflation Reduction Act obviously is trying to, to change. Um, but um you know, it can feel like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. I, I want to kind of end on a, just a, a general note. Like you're someone who I, I always feel energized after speaking with you. I feel like in general, you maintain a, a sense of like purpose and optimism in like the true sense of that word, not in the like, mm. like the oh, fake, shiny, everything like should be fine. And so I'm going to say that, like, I feel like you, uh, that your persistence on this issue, like shows mm -hmm. like a, a, a belief that, that things can get better and in some ways are getting better. I tend to sometimes slide more into the, like, look at the <laughs> global carbon math. Like this is, this is a mess. We have to do carbon math. It's way not faster. good. Um, what, what, like, what in the big picture, mm. like, how do you see things? How do you, um, what, what keeps you going in this space? And in, in, yeah. in the face of stuff, it's like, is truly daunting. And I know you see that in a very clear eyed way. Yeah. It's insanely daunting. Um, and I, you know, I have certainly, I've certainly gone through my bouts of feeling like quite disillusioned with um, the climate movement, um, feeling quite like, you know, like pretty hopeless about, <laughs> you know, about whether we, we can get it done. And I think I don't know. There's been something for me in this work about having to change my relationship with uncertainty and with the unknown um, and to constantly be like placing myself back as just like one node in this incredible ecosystem of of people who are showing up um to try 
to make things better um, in this really daunting moment. And, you know, there were a couple of years I published my first book in 2012 and then kind of stepped back really from climate work for a couple of years. And Mm -hmm. that um, didn't make anything better. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I maybe the only thing that's harder than being in this work is being out of this work. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't have, I, I, I have no idea um, if we will actually be able to, you know, pull off coming back into some form of reciprocity with the planet's living systems, but it absolutely feels like the most important work um, to be doing. And so that, that kind of keeps me going. And I feel like your the title of your podcast, Matter of Degrees, means like seventeen different things <laughs> potentially, <laughs> potentially. But one of them is like it's like the degree to which we do more ma- like matters, right? That yeah. sort of like realist version of like why to be persistently <laughs> um, mm-hmm. optimistic and to not and to not give up. I find that I find that pretty inspiring. Yeah, we we changed actually the logo or the the show art for for a matter of degrees this season and there's on our website it's a little animated version and you've got like little people with protest signs and little person with a you know with a bicycle thing and some people moving a solar panel and some other people doing some legislation work and somebody planting something and you know I'm like yeah like that's kind of you know like nothing any of us could do will ever come close to being enough in the like most global sense of that word. Um, But man, I think with so many more of us contributing in ways that give us a sense of, you know, authentic power and joy um, and participation in whatever this big, thing is um, that, that that I think we're 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 all part of like that's I don't know that that to me is like that's the only theory of change that makes makes sense to me um so I show up for that um well Catherine this has been like a pleasure thank you so much for um, um for doing this and you know for all the work that you do thank you so much for having me on the pod my thanks to Catherine Wilkinson You really should check out her podcast, Matter of Degrees. It's worth a listen. And that'll do it for this episode and for season three of Heat of the Moment. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Hugh Seawright, Dan Efron, Laura Rosbrow-Tellum, Claudia Tatey, and Yure Wu. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the climate investment funds, foreign policy, or their partners. Until next time, I'm John Sutter. Thanks for listening.